Amen and good morning, King's Cross. Listen, I walked up here and I didn't bring my Bible with me, so I'm walking back down these steps. <clears throat> That's uh, mission critical. As we continue our study in First Peter, I welcome you, especially if you're a guest or visitor this morning. My name is Clint, one of the pastors of this church. Glad that you're here. Glad that you're jumping in with us to worship, and, or perhaps you're not a Christian. You're exploring the things of the Christian faith. You don't know what you believe, and you're curious as to what we believe. If that's you, we also welcome you. Glad that you're here. It's a good and safe place for you to be and to explore the things of the Christian faith. We would invite you. Uh, reach out to one of us or to someone who brought you, invited you. Uh, we would love to help you uh, along the journey and have conversations about why we love Christ as we do. Let me pray one more time and ask for God's help. We'll dive into the text. Father, you're good. You're merciful and just. You're kind and righteous in all your ways, in your essence, in your being, and in your doing. Everything is flawless and beautiful and perfect. So we come to you through Christ, our crucified, buried, and resurrected, and reigning Lord, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, asking for help. Would you give us joy this morning? Supernatural, circumstantially transcendent, holy joy. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. In a weary world where following Christ is increasingly countercultural, where do we find hope and courage and strength to continue on the journey home to glory? When circumstances are difficult, when suffering seems long and trials seem unending, when the world feels increasingly foreign, where do we find the joy necessary to rejoice and be glad, as Peter says in chapter 4, verse 13? After Peter introduces himself and his audience in verses 1 and 2, he moves into the body of this letter and begins with a doxology or a praise to God for salvation. And you see that in the opening words of chapter 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he begins with a worship, an exaltation, a celebration, a, a, a delighting in God for something particular. And it is for salvation. This is where he begins his epistle. Before he talks to us about what it's like to find hope and strength and courage and help in the midst of the world, even in our suffering, he says the foundation of that joy is in your salvation. So we got to praise God before we even move forward into the body of this letter because of his saving work. This is common, not just for Peter. It's common for the Apostle Paul to open an epistle this way. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he's going to talk about comforting people in their suffering. But he opens up and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. He opens Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, in a very similar manner. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But salvation being the foundation of our joy and our stability, even in difficult days, isn't a new concept that Paul or Peter or the apostles came up with. This is a reality for the people of God in Israel as well. Psalm 27, 1, the psalmist says, The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The psalmist in Psalm 62 too, He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. What about King David after he falls into horrible sin? 
and rebels against the God against God with adultery and murder. And like, what does he do? What does he pray? What does he say to the Lord? Uh, Psalm 51, verse 12: Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. The psalmist in Psalm 118, verse 14: The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. God's saving work has always been a source of circumstantially transcendent joy for believers. No matter what we're going through in this life, prosperity or adversity, success or suffering, living in want or living in plenty, the key to our joy is found in praising God for his grace and mercy to us in salvation. I wonder this morning, do you feel your need for circumstantially transcendent joy? Do you long for a joy that doesn't go up and down with the economy, with your relationships, with presidential elections, with your job, with your success in all that you do? Do you long for a joy that transcends all of that, that is faithful through all of it? The big idea this morning is salvation is the foundation of our joy on our journey home. Salvation salvation is the foundation of our joy on our journey or as we journey home. Therefore, let us praise God for his saving mercy in order to make it through difficult days on this journey. Three reasons we ought to praise him as we think about our salvation. First, praise him for what's in the rear view. Praise him for what's in the rear view. Peter's doxological joy begins by reminding these elect exiles and by extension all faithful Christians today of our new birth in Christ. So he begins praising God, and then he says, now let me give you a reason. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If we want joy in this journey, we must regularly praise God for what's in the rearview mirror. We must praise him for what he's done in the past when he saved us. Sometimes we need reminders of the miracle of new birth that we are, in fact, Christians We need reminders of that moment when we started our journey home. And we need to be reminded specifically of what motivated God to save you, what happened when he saved you, and then what it took for him to save you. And, And Peter shows us all of that in this verse. First, notice God's motivation for our salvation, his great mercy. According to his great mercy. We need reminders That God saved us not because of anything good in us. That we were born dead in sin. So who we were born to or where we were born or when we were born made us no more or less savable before God. You're not a Christian because you were born in America or born to your family or born in this time period. You are a a Christian according to the mercy of God. We were born spiritually dead. We lived as spiritual zombies. Even for those of you who can remember your life before Christ, go back there with me for a minute and remember who you were. Remember how different you were. Remember how natural and fun sin was and how it tasted good to you. Remember how sin had you so bound up you can do anything to get free, though you kind of enjoyed it. Remember how when you thought of God, negative thoughts and emotions came to you such that you would suppress them or just push them away. Perhaps you saw God as some boring policeman in the sky. Perhaps, as Pastor Craig even prayed, as a genie in a bottle granting wishes, or maybe as a spiritual Santa Claus who might threaten coal in your stocking, but let's be serious. He's no more threat than the elf on the shelf. It doesn't matter what you do. You're going to get what you want. 
Perhaps you didn't think God existed at all. Perhaps you didn't care. Even those who can't remember your conversion, imagine where you might be today if his mercy hadn't come to you. You know the sin of your heart. You know the secret thoughts and actions and feelings going on inside of you. You know the temptations you felt or faced even as a Christian. If God had removed all mercy from you and let you have any sin you ever wanted and let that sin bring you all of the worst consequences it could possibly bring, where might you be today? What idols might you be serving if it wasn't for the mercy of God in Christ? What emptiness might you be feeling this morning? What hopelessness, what desires might be controlling and even destroying your life? For remember, no matter whether you remember those days or not, as the Apostle Paul so succinctly summarized, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work, and the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the mind and the body, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That was your story before you were born again. Nothing in you made God do anything. You were dead in sin. You were naturally an enemy of God. Oh, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might reveal to us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. Not because of anything you did. By grace alone you've been saved. Because he is rich in mercy. What is the basis of his saving of you and I? He saved us not because of our works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Spirit, Titus 3, 5. Why did he save us? His great mercy. His rich mercy. His great love. What does mercy mean? Mercy is leniency or compassion shown toward offenders by a person or agency of authority. Compassion or leniency. From one who's in authority, who ought to be crushing someone, instead showing love and mercy to them. Why are we saved? Why did we get saved? Why has God loved us? Because of his great mercy. Oh, son or daughter of God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God saved you because of his rich mercy. Not because you did good or tried hard or promised to try hard or promised to do good. No, it's because of his mercy. He's not poor in mercy. He's not middle class in mercy. He's filthy rich with mercy. He's a billionaire in mercy a trillion times over. That's why he saved you. That's what motivated him to save you. And this means you didn't earn it. You can't earn it. And that means you can't lose it. His mercy was set upon you, is set upon you in Christ. And there's no getting away from it. So you might as well just enjoy it. Struggling brother or sister, if it's true that you did nothing to motivate his mercy, but out of his own mercy he saved you, it's equally true. Nothing you can do can demotivate his mercy to you. He's not looking to you. He wasn't looking to you to find a reason to save you. He's not looking to you currently to find a reason to keep you. He's doing it because he's merciful. He is set the eyes of his mercy on you because he wanted to save you and make you savable is what he has done. Christian, look in the rear view. 
God's mercy motivated him to save you. Non-Christian friend, cast yourself on his great mercy by faith even now. But we can't stop there. That's, that's why, that's what motivated him to save us. But continue, notice the result of his saving or this salvation. Regeneration to living hope. So according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to living hope. So according to his great mercy, he's born you anew. He's made you new, or to use the old language, he's beget you anew. He granted you new birth by his Holy Spirit, just as Jesus taught Nicodemus in John 3. He's spoken to your spiritual dead state, to your spiritual tomb, and like Lazarus, told you to come forth. You received a new heart, a new spiritual taste buds, a new desire to love God and love what he loves and hate what he hates, and you came to new life. Remember when it happened, Christian. Remember there was that friend or that pastor or that parent or that campus minister or that stranger that shared the gospel with you. Perhaps you picked up the scriptures and just decided to read them. But at some point, the Spirit of God moved and made you new. Peter later summarizes in verse 23 of chapter 1. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So look in the rear view. Now don't worry, like as you think about looking in the rear view, it's like we're driving. We don't want to wreck, right? Driving, looking in the rear view. We're in, a, we're in a flawless Tesla right now, all right? So you can look in the rear view. It's fine. We're not going to wreck. It's taking us somewhere. Look in the rear view. Remember when God changed your desires for him. Think back to those days and what he did. Remember how he came and got you and you desired to know him. And even if trembling, you, you started having this desire to make him known, to tell other people of this great mercy. You wanted other people to know his great love and mercy. Do you remember? Do you remember how sin that you used to be comfortable with suddenly started to taste bitter? Suddenly foul words from your mouth sounded fouler to you than you remembered them. Sexual sin in your life troubled you like never before. Anger and pride and vanity, these internal sins that were always there, suddenly became more aware, uh, available to you. You saw them more clearly. Not only that, you found new desires for his word to know and understand it. You wanted to honor him in your relationships. When you prayed sometimes as a new believer, it felt like, man, if I open my eyes, like he's going to be standing right here in front of me. I can just dap him up like he's right there. You felt his nearness and his, his love and his mercy and his kindness in rich and powerful ways. You suddenly wanted to forgive other people in ways you never had before. Rachel and I have been counseling a couple that the Lord has done an incredible work in. And we're watching these new desires just come to life in them right now. And it's so deeply encouraging. Like we're talking to them about certain things and then suddenly they're bringing up like, yo, we shouldn't be doing that either, should we? It's like, no, yeah, probably not. <laughs> like, but there's just these new taste buds, these new desires, these new convictions, these new longings. And, and it's almost like as they're sharing them, they're like, I don't even know where this is coming from. And we're like, we do, you've been born again. You're, you're a new person. You didn't start, like you didn't, you didn't have a new start. Like, oh, it's the new year, let me have a new start. No, 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 you started new. <laughs> Like you're entirely new. You were dead, now you are alive. It reminds me of prayers that I prayed as a new believer, young in my faith. Like, God, I've messed up so bad, and I don't know what to do. And then watching him answer them and seeing him be faithful to a young, immature believer who had messed up bad. Do you remember? Maybe that's what you're like right now. And you're like, all right, what am I supposed to do? No, no, you're talking about remember like back then. I'm like there right now. <laughs> Like, everything's new. I feel like an alien in a different body. I don't know what's happening. Who am I? What's all these? Like, what am I supposed to do? Again, like me, the first decade of my walk with Christ. I remember being around Christians, and 
you know, in my mind, I'm like, y'all keep talking about these stories in the Bible as if I know what you're talking about. <laughs> y'all went to Sunday school. You grew up here. I didn't go to Sunday school. I didn't grow up. I don't have any idea what y'all talking about. You just kind of assume it and they would be talking. Y'all keep talking about turn to Zechariah. And I'm like, where? Where is he? Where is Zechariah? Can we call him Zech? What? Like, oh, you're talking about the, like, no, no, no. It's, it's, it's a book, Clint. It's a book. Say, so, oh, okay, great. Where do I buy it? Do I get it on Amazon? No, it's in the Bible. Okay, great. Like, let's, let's, you know, they're like, turn to chapter two, verse one. I'm like, what page is that on? Like, what do you mean two? Like, I don't know anything. So let me go to the table of contents, find a page, and then y'all help me understand any, like, maybe that's where you're at even today. Brand new, wondering, what do I do? What are you supposed to, and, and I would just encourage you, that's exactly what you should feel like as a new Christian. Like a newborn baby, learning to walk, learning to eat. Learning, learning to survive, needing parents, needing brothers and sisters to help you and carry you, take care of you and spoon feed you and take, like this is what Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And one of the great things about this rebirth is it produces something so glorious in you that it's almost beyond communicable expression. You've been born again to a living hope. Not empty hope, not vain hope, not fickle hope, not dead hope, living hope. A peace that surpasses all knowledge and understanding, hope. Hey, I know that my best days are ahead of me, hope. We'll talk more about this hope in just a moment in the next subpoint and then the next point. But according to his great mercy, he calls you to be born again. This is the motivation and result of your salvation. So as you look in the rear view, remember the means, I'm sorry, remember what he's done, remember why he's done it, but then also, lastly, remember the means it took to accomplish and for him to do that. So according to his great mercy, he's called you to be born again, the means of our salvation, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So notice it's God's mercy that motivated your salvation, but, and God's justice demanded your atonement for your sin. So God in his mercy wants to save you, but God in his justice ought to crush you. But according to his great mercy, he's called you to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so this brings to mind all of the truths of the gospel. That Jesus left the comfort and glory of heaven to come to this broken world. He lived a life that you should have lived but couldn't because of your sin. He died the death you deserved in your place. Though he had done no wrong, had no sin in him, but died in the place of your sin. But friends, he didn't stay dead. He was raised from the dead on the third day as the first fruits of all those whom he would save. Christ satisfied the law's requirement. He died your death. He paid your penalty. He propitiated the wrath of God. He upheld the justice of God. And he freely credited you with his righteousness. He rose to walk in newness of life. He won your victory. He purchased your adoption into the family of God. And he distributed God's justifying mercy to you. That's what you proclaimed in your baptism. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united to him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Christ walked out of that tomb in the Middle East so that your hope would be a living hope, a living hope of resurrection. Death is not the end for you, Christian. Death is a transition to glory. You once were hopeless and godless, but due to his resurrection, death is defeated and Christ is forevermore. Christian hope is as alive as Jesus is. Because he's not dead, we are never hopeless no matter what we go through in this life. We have this unshakable hope because of his resurrection and the fact that it guarantees ours. Brothers and sisters, remember your first experience of that living hope when you placed your faith in Christ and received his spirit. 
When you came up out of the waters of baptism and all those theological realities washed afresh over you, remember all of the joy in the rear view and rejoice. Remember all that Christ did for you on Calvary and how he walked out of the tomb and praise him. Remember when you first believed and received that new birth and living hope and give him glory. Come behold the wondrous mystery slain by death, the God of life. But no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance, how unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. Rich in mercy, how you love me. Too much to let me stay lost. My salvation sent from heaven, nailing my sin to a cross. Christian, remember who you were. Remember what he's done. Remember who you are. Remember why he's done it. Remember how he's done it. And praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But that's just the rear view. Secondly, praise him for what's in front of you. So praise him for what's in the rear view, but also praise him for what's in front of you. Look at verse 4. He's done all of that. This living hope, this resurrection, and raised you to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. See, Peter connects what's in the rear view to what's in front of you. Because of what Christ has accomplished in the past, your living hope is in a destination guaranteed in the future. Now, salvation in the scriptures is broader than mere conversion. It includes conversion. But salvation in the Bible is bigger than that. It uses the word salvation to encapsulate all of it. Union to Christ, regeneration, justification, adoption, sanctification, and glorification. It includes your conversion, but it is so much bigger than that. So there are aspects of salvation that make it appropriate to say, we have been saved, and we will be saved, and in fact, we are being saved. We'll see this as we think about the uh, final future salvation unto this inheritance. If you look at the end of verse 5, there's a salvation talked about to be revealed in the last day. So understand, see how the word is used broadly. No, no, there's salvation, you became a Christian, but there's salvation that's coming in the last day. You have been saved, but you're going to be saved in a way that you haven't yet been saved, meaning you're going to live in glory where there's no more sin and no more death and no more sorrow. You've been saved, and that's guaranteed because of what's in the rear view, but your future in front of you is also guaranteed. If you're in Christ because he saved you in the rear view, then there's a certain salvation in front of you. Your eternal future is fully secured, and it is glorious. Our living hope is not merely a feeling for a generally positive, ethereal future, but it is a glory of inheritance in a perfect physical world with God as our God and we as his people. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Again, what is Peter doing right here? He's making parallel comparisons in language and using language of Old Testament Israel and New Testament church, and he's wanting you to think similarly of these things. He's saying, no, no, no. Remember Israel had an inheritance, a land. Over 200 times in the Old Testament, inheritance is used, and usually talking about Canaan, the promised land for Israel. There was this inheritance coming to them. But now Peter's using that language to describe what all true believers have due to the work of Christ. Namely, this eternal inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Karen Job says it well. This inheritance is untouched by death, unstained by evil, unimpaired by time. It is compounded of immortality, purity, and beauty. So let's think about these three words for just a minute to think about the certain future that we have. Imperishable. 
The reward of the new heavens and new earth that God has for you is imperishable. What does this mean? It cannot die. Your inheritance cannot cease to exist. It is undiable, if you will. It is eternal. It is forever. It is currently and always will be yours. It is immortal. This treasure is to be explored and enjoyed forever by you with God and his people in glory. It will never die. This inheritance will never die. It's imperishable. But not only that, it's undefiled. What does he mean by that? It's untainted by sin. Again, it's undefiable, if you will. When our first parents sinned and death entered the world, everything was tainted by sin. Not so with your eternal inheritance. Sin and death will no longer impact your experience of life. All of the aches, mentally, physically, spiritually, will be gone. The new creation will be beautiful, and your intake and experience of it will be full and forever. Your inheritance is pure and unstained. The psalmist says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand pleasures forevermore. Full and forever pleasure, unstained, untainted, untouched by sin and brokenness. But not only that, not only is it imperishable, not only is it, is it um, undefiled, it's unfading. It's unfading. So time will not remove any of the awe of the experience. It'll be impossible to get bored or tired of enjoying this inheritance. You might exchange what you're fully enjoying for fully enjoying something else, but you will never tire of enjoying any and all of it forever. The beauty of this inheritance will never fade. It'll never diminish. It will never get less. The perfect, radiant beauty will be forever. The new car smell never goes away in glory. <laughs> like you never need an update on anything. They never make it where your battery starts dying so you got to buy another phone. <laughs> no, it's like it's unfading. It never gets less than how beautiful it always is forever in per perfection. The whole of glory is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. But not only that, notice this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Now for Peter's original audience of Christians... It may have been the case that their conversion to Christ cost them their earthly inheritance from their non-believing families. It's possible they had an earthly inheritance, but when they were converted to Christ, their family cut them off and they lost it. And that's not just the case in this day. Remember uh, my first years on staff of Campus Outreach, I was at Wingate University and I had a Bible study with a Hindu, a shamanist, a Buddhist, and an atheist, all in one Bible study. And the Hindu, particularly, God was doing some things in his life such that we had some conversations. I remember sitting out in front of Helm's dorm, the freshman uh, men's dorm, sitting out in the car at night, having a conversation. And he's like, look, Clint. And it's almost like he was whispering because he understood the weight of what he was saying. I think you're right. I don't believe in the millions and millions of God I've been, gods I've been taught to believe growing up. And I think you're right. Probably Jesus is the way to God. He's like, there's one true God. And I think Christ is, I, I believe you. But if I become a Christian, my family will cut me off immediately. I'll be kicked out of the family. They will stop paying for school. I will have nothing, nowhere to go, no home, no family. I will have nothing. He felt the weight of, I will lose my inheritance and everything in this life. He counted the cost. And unfortunately, he decided, I think you're right, but I, but I just can't. Understanding this, this inheritance... In this life, there may be, like, we may lose everything. Everything. 
as we follow Christ. But we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and it is currently kept in heaven waiting for us. So we might lose everything. Actually, we're losing nothing. This inheritance is protected and guarded by God himself so that no matter what we have in this life, what we keep in this life, again, whether we prosper or whether we suffer, we know this inheritance is kept safe for us in glory. This is why missionary Jim Elliott, famous Jim Elliott's rule, he, he, he gave up his life for the sake of the gospel, trying to take the mercy of the gospel to people who ended up killing him as he was trying to take the gospel forth. And he said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He understood there's an eternal inheritance waiting for me. So if I lose it here, that's fine because I get to keep it forever. So I'm going to live differently when I understand that inheritance is forever. This is short and temporary and fading. C.T. Studd, another missionary, once said, One life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. He understood this eternal inheritance. Christ himself taught in the Sermon on the Mount, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's an eternal reward for those in Christ that is so far superior to anything we could ever think or imagine. It is better than the earthly inheritance of Israel in the land of Canaan. Grudem makes this point. The inheritance of the new covenant Christian is thus shown to be far superior to the earthly inheritance of the people of Israel in the land of Canaan. That earthly land was not kept for them, but was taken from them in exile and later by Roman occupation. Even while they possessed the land, it produced rewards that decayed, rewards whose glory faded away. The beauty of the land's holiness before God was repeatedly defiled by sin. Not so with this reward for all those who look to Christ, whether they were looking to the coming Christ and Messiah who came or they're on this side of the cross looking back to the Christ and Messiah who came. Our inheritance is forever. It's better than the American dream. This inheritance is worth building your life on even if it means losing the American dream. God is a perfect father waiting to give us all that he's prepared for us. That final salvation will be like the greatest Christmas morning where the perfect heavenly father gives the inheritance to all of his children without end. The difference is, though, his children won't get tired of playing with the new toys in just a few hours. And instead, these children will enjoy the inheritance as a means of enjoying their father's great mercy forever. Love, life, beauty, joy, and delight without end. Everything here expires, is tainted by sin in this broken world, loses its luster and beauty over time. Why would you live to get more stuff here? When in glory, our inheritance is being kept by our Father to give to us, to enjoy to the full forever. The Old Testament saints look to this Messiah and will get that inheritance. The New Testament saints look back to the Messiah who came, lived, died, rose, and will get that inheritance. Why would we live for anything less than that? Look and live for that even today. So remember where you're headed. Praise Him for what's in front of you. So praise Him for what's in the rearview mirror. What he did in the past in saving you, but also in the fact that Christ lived, died, rose, and ascended and sent the Spirit to dwell in you and then uh, make you born again. Praise him for what's back there, but also praise him for what's in front of you. But Peter's got one more reason to praise God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning. Lastly, praise him for who's guarding and guiding you. Praise him for who's guarding and guiding you. Verse 5, he said, you're headed to this glory who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
We have been saved. Look in the rear view. We will be saved. Look in front of you. We are being saved. Look who's guarding and guiding you. Now, any parent who's ever taken their children on any trip to somewhere where they are excited have heard that famous phrase, are we there yet? Anytime someone's on a journey to somewhere they're excited, at some point on that journey, you get tired of waiting and it's hard. It's like, no, I just want to get there. I just want to be to the destination. I'm sick of journeying to the destination. I want to get to the destination. And at this moment, what we find out is, no, no, God has saved us through Christ on the cross. That's happened, so it's guaranteed. We keep that in the rear view. We see the cross of Christ. We know what he's done. That's evidence that we know where we're going, so we know what's in front of us. We're in the Tesla. The GPS is set towards eternal glory. We know we're going to make it, but even in the midst of it, we're tempted to look to the right and to the left to get tired of the journey, tired of suffering, tired of waiting. We want it now, and he knows in that moment you might be tempted to say, let me override the Tesla. Let me start driving. I'll turn around and go somewhere else. And so what he says is not only have I saved you, Not only am I going to save you, I'm saving you right now. I'm guarding you. I'm guarding you all the way to glory. This Tesla is an impenetrable tank. And I'm going to make sure it gets you safe to where we're going. You're going to be guarded unto glory. This is true on our journey from salvation to salvation. From regeneration to glorification. From being born again to our eternal inheritance with our just and merciful God. We'll be tempted to look to the right or left, to get on a different path, to go astray. But the God who gave us great mercy will keep us by his great mercy. The God who calls us to be born again, the God who's keeping this inheritance to give to us, to enjoy forever, is the God who says, I'm with you right now to make sure you get there safe, guarding and guiding us. You see this when he says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. So praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus for safety on the journey home. The inheritance is being kept safe for you. And you're being kept safe for the inheritance. So he's guarding and keeping everybody safe. Now, it's a fair question to say, but wait a minute. At first, this seems untrue. Isn't the whole point of this epistle to help Christians who are suffering, not just in spite of the fact they're Christians, but because they're Christians, they're suffering. So Peter's writing to say, here's how you suffer faithfully as the world hates you because you're a Christian. And yet Peter is saying God is going to get us to glory safely. Is there contradiction to here? Like, like what? Was Peter kept safe? Does church history not record that he was crucified upside down? Are these Christians who are in the dispersion, the diaspora, spread out as elect exiles, not soon to suffer awful martyrdom deaths? Are there not brothers and sisters all over the world today suffering, not in, like just randomly, but because they're in fact Christian, they're suffering? Isn't it the case that currently as we continue to move forward in our culture, increasingly being a Christian is seen as a problem? What does it mean to be kept safe then? What does it mean that he's guarding us by his power? If we're physically, potentially, socially, emotionally, spiritually, if if we're potentially in danger, what does it mean he is guarding us? Is God keeping us safe? Well, of course he kept all those people safe, and of course he's keeping us safe. Peter doesn't say or mean that God will keep us from earthly suffering, suffering by helping us to avoid it per se, though sometimes he does. It's right to pray for, for safety from suffering. It's right to pray for our brothers. Like what Pastor Craig prayed this morning for Eden Kell. It's, it's good to pray for physical recovery. Like it's good to pray for safety from suffering. But that's not necessarily the kind of guarding we're talking about here. No, God's power keeps us safe. Notice it said through faith. He keeps us believing in him and headed to our final destination. 
What is the great threat and danger that he's keeping us safe from? Unbelief. He's keeping you safe from running off the road, hitting a U-turn and running back away. Now, there are some who profess faith who aren't genuinely saved. That becomes revealed and obvious. But those who actually are genuinely saved are going to make it to glory. And he's going to make sure because he's going to keep them safe. It's through their faith as they cling to the promises of God and hope in God, even and especially in the midst of suffering, he keeps and guards their faith. If I look back at my walk with Christ since God saved me, the greatest moments of my intimacy with God have often come in the greatest trials and suffering. Like I look back and I think about when I looked into that casket. When I had to pray after telling the team that the heartbeat of our team was getting taken off life support that night. When I walked into that room and I saw a girl unquestionably possessed by a demon. When I thought a student was dead in the back seat of my car. When Eden, my daughter, didn't sleep for the first 14 months of her life. When Rachel had to be cut out of a car after we were T-boned on the way to church. In the hardest moments of our marriage and ministry, when I see sin in me that I just can't beat on my own, when I, when I sit with Garrett up in D.C. and his daughter's been unconscious for two weeks because of seizures and doctors have no idea, in those moments, where else am I going to turn but faith in God? Where else am I going to find help and hope in my time of need? Except in the rearview mirror and in what's in front of me. And in those moments, even when suffering it's because the power of God, namely the Holy Spirit, is guarding me, is keeping me. Because he who began a work in me will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So this God is not just a God who saved you in the rear view. He's not just a God who's going to save you in glory. He's a God who's currently guarding you and saving you, making sure you get to glory because he's already given his mercy to save you to begin with. Knee-buckling moments of suffering often lead you to greater faith and trust in the one who's guarding you. Brother or sister, God is guarding you. He's guarding you. And you might want to run away. You'll come back. If you're in Christ, you'll come back. He'll get you. Or he'll take you home to glory. One or the other. And one way or the other, he's going to get you home safe. Because he loves you. And not just guarded, but again, notice you're being guided. And I've been saying it, we've been talking about it, so there's not much to say here. But you're being guarded by his power for salvation to be revealed in the last time. You're being guided to that final destination. That living hope that we have that's in that inheritance that is uh, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. You're going to that. That's what you're hoping in. He's guarding you and he's guiding you to make sure you get there and he knows the best way to get you home safe. Salvation in the rear view. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. Salvation now and who's guarding and guiding you. Living hope being guarded and guided home. Salvation in front of you, imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance. Salvation that will be revealed at the last time. Christian, no matter what you're going through now or will go through in the future, you are in his omnipotent grip. He's got you. Jesus said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You're in that omnipotent grip. You're going to make it home safely. That's why you have present hope and joy, because of the past work which guarantees your future inheritance. Therefore, we can count it all joy when we suffer trials of various kinds. We can rejoice always, no matter what we're going through. So I challenge you this morning. There's been very few applications in this sermon. I don't know if you picked up on that. 
I haven't really told you to do anything today outside of remember. Remember what he has done. Praise him. That's the application. Praise him for what's in the rear of you. Remember his great mercy to you. Remember the new birth. Remember his cross and resurrection. Praise him for what's in front of you. Remember the inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And remember who's got you. You are being guarded by his power through faith. You're being guided to salvation to be revealed in that glorious day. Understanding the glories of our salvation leads to circumstantially transcendent joy to the praise of our great God. Let us then say with Peter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer.